Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Welcome, friends. It is your favorite game, Church Feud. I am your host, Ross Manders. We are excited to play Church Feud today. I'm going to invite my two guests, Heather and Dan, up forward. Please welcome them to the stage. You guys know the rules. We asked 100 people, and the top eight answers are on the board. What, and you just, all you have to do is slap your hand down, okay? And your families are, by the way, present as well. What is at the center of Christianity? Heather, is love on the board? The number one answer. Would you like to play or would you like to pass? Pass. All right. You can take a seat then. Thank you. Now, Daniel, you have your wonderful family here together. I'm going to have you introduce all of them to us, but feel free to use them as you would like to get some answers here. What is at the center of Christianity? We asked 100 people, and these are the top eight answers. Number one is on the board. What do you want to go with? What do you want to say? You got a couple answers out there, I heard. Jesus. Jesus. Is Jesus on the board? Where is Jesus? Number seven, only three people said Jesus. Interesting, okay. But it's on the board, you're still alive. What else we got? What is at the center of Christianity? Forgiveness. Is forgiveness on the board? Is, is, gra- is grace on the board? Use grace. We'll give you that. No, oh, no. Hypocrisy is all evidently on the board, friends. Sad to say. Sad to say. Where is grace on the board? I'll tell you where it is. It's number six. Oh. Okay, maybe it's uh, number five, I meant. That's what I meant. There you go. All right, what else we got, family? What's on the board here? Come on, what's on the board? Faith. You want to go with faith? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I heard faith. There we go. All right, faith. Trust. Ooh. That is one strike. I'll say sin, since apparently we're going in that direction. Ooh, sin. Interesting. What is Christianity all about? Sin. Good answer. Good answer. Sin? Is that no? Hmm. How about judgment? I got judgment over here. What do you want to think? What do you think? It's, all right. So as it, yeah, judgment. We're, judgment. We're judgy Christians. 
What do you think, friends? What is at the center of Christianity? Money. Ooh. Money. Is money on the board? Oh, thank you for playing, Daniel. Appreciate it. Good job, buddy. Anybody else want to try to guess what's uh, number three? A relationship. Relationship with God. Number four. Rules. And this is going to be a fun one. Number eight. Republican ideology. (laughs) We are starting a brand new series titled Jesus-Centered Christianity Today. What we just discussed are actual responses from our community, by the way, friends. I asked this question on Facebook a couple weeks ago, and not everybody responded on the post, because if you want to say judgment after 55 people have told you that Christianity is about love, uh, you're going to get a lot of uh, backlash with that. And so I got a lot of responses via DMs. I talked with a lot of people individually and personally, and these were the responses that people gave me. But let me tell you what the correct answer is, friends. Jesus-centered... Christianity. Jesus is at the center of the Christian faith. And yes, of course, Jesus is the embodiment of love and grace and faith and hope, and he's the means by which we have a relationship with God. So often what we have with Christian tradition is that other things, though, have found their way into the center, and they've crowded the center, and they've cluttered up the center. Somewhere Jesus is still there. Of course, he's kind of still at the center a little bit, and maybe individually, of course, speaking. Yeah, Jesus is still kind of in the middle, but man, our hearts, corporately and individually, they're kind of cluttered. Yeah, Jesus is there, but he's just kind of an add-on to all the other things in life. In the 4th century, it was power. In the 5th century, it was theology. In the 11th century, it was the Christian expansion through war, the Crusades. In the 12th century, it was about money. In the 13th century, it was cathedrals. In the 15th century, it was the Bible. In the 18th century, it was apologetics. In the 20th century, it was about rules. All of these things found their way into a very crowded center where Jesus was there. Yes, of course, Jesus was there, but he was just kind of an add-on. In addition to all the other things, Jesus was there. But my friends, when you clutter the center with things other than Jesus, things that aren't always bad but aren't the central thing, you fundamentally change and dilute what Christianity is. Who Jesus is, what he did, who he's for. You dilute hope, you dilute love, you dilute what he can do in you. When you crowd up your center with other things other than Jesus. This is true corporally, it's also true individually. What you put at the center of your life, my friends, will inform your worldview, your value, where you find acceptance, your behavior, your words, your thoughts, your habits, your purpose, even your community. What you put at the center of your life informs your identity and becomes the filter you sift your life through. And some of us have a very cluttered center, a very crowded center. And a big reason we're struggling with obedience to God, a big reason we're struggling with our behavior, why it's so selfish, why our marriage is falling apart, why we can't get along with people, why our work ethic is waning and we lack purpose. We lack self-worth. We can't get over the things that we've done in the past, right? We're just ridden with guilt. It's because Jesus isn't at the center. And we have a very crowded center. We put something else at the center of our life. We're worshiping something else. 
You ever wonder who your God is? You want to ask yourself, I wonder who my God is. Yeah, I say it's Jesus. Yeah, I say it's, it's God, but I wonder actually who my God is. How would I even know? Well, ask yourself what's most important to you. Ask yourself what's at the center of your being. What's motivating you? What are you filtering your life through? That is essentially what you worship, and that is essentially then who your God is. My intention is always, and I hope you know this, if you've been around a little while, hope you felt this and experienced this, my intention always is to help you and to reason with you as to why you should put Jesus more firmly and solely at the center of your life. That is my role to you. Because if anything else occupies your space in the center, it will lead you deeper into selfish pursuits and self-preservation. And in a finite world, selfishness is always going to create ruin. It's always going to create chaos and it will always leave a destruction in its wake. So to help us understand a Jesus-centered Christianity, we're going to look at one chapter in a letter that this guy named Paul wrote to first century Christians living in the city of Rome. And that's why we call this book Romans. Most scholars and readers of the Bible consider Romans to be the crown of Christian theology. This is like, this is it. If you want to understand what Christianity is all about, read the book of Romans. But as I've said, it is incredibly dense. It's, it's very hard to understand at times. Theologically, it is incredibly dense. And so we're going to pick this one chapter apart over the next several weeks. He writes his most dense theological treaty regarding what Jesus has done because the gospel is our unity and the gospel is our life. And in the city of Rome, there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. And they were at war against each other, not literally war, but they were at odds against each other as to what we are to put alongside Jesus. It can't just all be about Jesus. We have to put something else along. For the Jews, it was the law. For the Jews, it was circumcision. For the, for the Jews, it was Sabbath regulations. Yeah, Jesus, of course, is at the center, but we're going to add all of these additional laws alongside Jesus. For the Gentiles, it was like, guys, 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 the grace of God is so wonderful. The grace of God is so enormous and so large. It doesn't matter how we live our life. God's grace will always cover it. And so Paul's like, guys, not, neither one of you are seeing this correctly. Jesus and Jesus alone has got to be at the center of it all. And so he's writing this really dense theological treatise as to why, as to why Jesus and Jesus alone should be at the center of our life. And so for seven chapters prior to chapter eight, Paul argues with, and he lays out what God did through us through Jesus to address this human conundrum of, of sin and death. And then in chapter up, chapter eight, he sums it all up. And so chapter eight is like, the bow on top of the package that ties everything together. This is the cherry on top of the Sunday, right? This is, this is the fireworks display at the end of the, f- the finale, right? This is, this is the crown on top of the jewel. Chapter 8, theologians would say, biblical scholars would say, this is the center of Romans, which is the center of the Christian faith. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to study this one chapter line by line. And there are three things that I would like you to do as we think about this. Four things, actually, considering Emily's great suggestion. I want you to read Romans as many, Romans 8 in particular, as many times as you can. Whether it be once a week or once every day, even, again, it's one chapter. Read Romans 8 as often as you can. In addition, do everything in your power to be here each Sunday. I recognize there are other things outside of your control that you can't be here. Be, do everything in your power to be here each Sunday because every week is going to build on the previous week. Uh, in addition, I want you to bring your Bible, whether that be in an app version or a physical Bible, bring it with you, study the word in front of you together as we go through Romans 8. And lastly, invite your people to join you. Invite your people to come with you because this chapter includes some of the most powerful ideas, generally the most powerful ideas ever written. 
down, and it addresses a lot of questions that I think a lot of people have about Christianity. For instance, is Christianity just another religion? Is there anything unique about it? Can following Jesus actually change my life? If God loves us, why is there suffering? Has this pain occurred because I ticked God off? Anybody ask that question? Why is my life going this direction? Is God just angry at me? Did I do something to make God mad at me? What is God actively doing now in the world? Does God really work all things for good? And what does that even mean? If God is for us, if God is on our side, if God is cheering us on, or is he just angry at us? And if God loves us, is there anything that can remove that love? Do you guys know anybody in your life that might be interested in getting an answer to one of these questions? Invite them to join you throughout this series. Today we jump into chapter 8 of Romans, and here is how Paul begins chapter 8. He begins by saying, therefore, and of course, every time you hear the word or read the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it? Therefore, thank you, one one person, okay. What is it? Therefore, whenever you read therefore, you need to ask, what is it? Therefore, and immediately we need to pause because whenever you see this, you need to go backwards into a book to understand what came before it if you're going to understand exactly why he chose the word therefore. And in this case, it draws us all the way back to chapter 3 where he begins this argument of the gospel, where he begins to circle the gospel. And for the next four chapters, all the way up to chapter 8, he's going to discuss the power of sin and death, the, the, the role of the law given to Israel to combat it, but ultimately the sacrifice of, of Jesus, of God himself, to put sin and death once and for all to death. So considering what God has already done through Jesus Christ, therefore... There is now no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Let me just pause again with a brief explanation because I find this often confuses people. Paul is not saying that there will not be any judgment. He is saying there will be no condemnation. Everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. He says this verbatim in chapter 14 as he's concluding his letter. Everyone will be judged. God will weigh all of our lives against how well they align with Christ. God will weigh all of our lives with how well they align with Christ. It's as if we are like a lump of clay. Think about this. We're, we're all just a lump of clay, right? And each decision we make and every choice we make, we are kind of forming that clay into something. Or shaping it and forming it. And Jesus even says every word that comes out of our mouth is a way of shaping this clay. So every thought, every intention, every word, every little decision we make is shaping this clay and forming this clay. And God is going to judge each of us based on how well that clay lump looks like Jesus. Now, some of you aren't very good sculptors in, in like a lump of clay, but in life in general, like as we are forming and molding this clay, God's going to say, does this lump of clay look like Christ? Even the very best of us, the most humble and loving and kind and caring by our own efforts, won't produce an image of clay that looks anything like the likeness of Christ. What, would, what, what we would present to God might look like this statue of Lucille Ball in New York City. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this before. <clears throat> it was a dedication to Lucille Ball. And this is the image that they produced of her. Even the best of us would only produce something that faintly looks human. You can tell it's a person. You can tell it's human, but you would not know if you did not have context that that is supposed to be Lucille Ball. 
And that's our problem, right? By our own efforts, the best of any of us can do is produce this mangled resemblance of a human-like being which will be deemed unacceptable on the Day of Judgment. But let's be honest, what most of us would present is just a lump of clay that we failed to let God mold. It's just, it's just a lump of clay and that we have failed to let God mold. Here's the thing. Everyone will be judged. Creasy. It's the word in Greek for judgment. But not everyone will be condemned. Kata krisis. The determining factor will be if one, as Paul says, is in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. But this is not a blanket statement. There will be condemnation for those not in Christ Jesus, and Paul will tell us why in just a second. But I want you to sit with this for just a moment. I want to let this wash over you. I want to let this spill into the most deep recesses of your heart and of your mind and of your soul. I don't know who of you needs to hear this this morning, but there is no (laughs) condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you have carried around guilt your whole life, and that guilt has weighed you down. And that guilt has tripped you up from moving forward as best you can in life. Some of you have carried around so much of life and the weight and your guilt because of something that you did or something that someone else did to you, and you just can't seem to get past it. And every day you wake up and you try to get past it, but you can't. And it haunts you. Some of you carry around the shame of things that you've done in the past. And you try to get over it and you try to forgive yourself, but you can't. You try not to let it bother you and you try not to let it weigh you down. But for some reason, it just keeps weighing you down and it just keeps haunting you. And you can't get over it. You carry it around the sense that you're tainted. Because you couldn't live up to the standard that your parents demanded of you. You let people down. You weren't the person that your parents expected you to be. You lived a secret life, and you always felt ashamed when your parents would tell their friends about how great you were because you know deep inside that you weren't living up to their expectations. Deep inside you, you knew that your life was a lie. You carried this guilt and this shame, and it's been eating at your heart. It's been eating at your soul. And yeah, you get by, but if you were honest in your more honest moments... You're a wreck inside because you're carrying a lot of shame and you're carrying a lot of guilt. And what Paul would, I think, speak to each one of you who feel this way. He would come to you, he would get low, and he would look into your eye, and he would say, friends, do not dwell on the past. Don't dwell on your past. Yes, I, I want you to own your past. I want you to learn from your past, but do not dwell there. The past does not have to define you because there is a new future for those who are in Christ because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. You are free. You are new. You are forgiven. And so listen and pay attention. Let me explain why, but bear with me because this It's deeply theological, philosophical at times. If you're a note taker, if you're a picture taker, I would encourage you to get all that ready because it's going to come like a fire hose. My friends, what Paul is about to explain, right? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? How? Some of you are like, how? Why? I want to know why because I, I feel condemned. Listen up because he is about to answer why. 
The really good news is, is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But doesn't this seem like an odd thing to say? Because this is not the language that we typically talk about Christianity in, in, in the church. We talk about believing in Jesus Christ. Uh, we talk about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. But being in Jesus Christ, that seems foreign. That seems strange. Paul's going to spend the next 11 verses unpacking that. We're not going to get to all those verses today. We're only going to go through verse 4 today. And this is a very dense theological history of why those who are in Jesus Christ are not condemned. And so bear with me, saddle up. Here we go. Another way of saying this is that there is no condemnation for those who have trusted Jesus Christ to occupy their center. There is no condemnation for those who have trusted Jesus Christ to occupy their center. Why? Because here's the reality. We talk about this all the time. Everybody is religious. Everybody is, is doing something to fix the innate problem they know they have. We know, in other words, that we're sinners, right? We all know this. It, it is ingrained into the, the psyche, to the knowledge of living on this planet. We feel it every time that we fight with our spouse. We feel it every time that we're in a relational conflict. We feel it every time we turn on the news and we see a world at war. We feel it every time that we're disrespected or that when we disrespect others. We feel it every time that we stub our toe or that we experience a broken bone. We see it as the stones cry out with natural disasters. We feel it under our skin as we carry around guilt and shame. Everyone knows that the world isn't right and that we're not right. And everybody, 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 every single person in this room, every person in your household, every person in your community, every person that has ever walked the face of this planet has done something themselves to try to fix it. That is religion. It is our effort, our doing something, our attempt to fix the problem we know we have. And everyone has placed something at the center of their life that they are chasing after in an attempt to cope with the brokenness they feel. To cope with this world of sin and death, hoping for dear life that what they are placing at the center, what they are worshiping, what they are pursuing and chasing after will somehow rid their broken, wayward heart and mind of this disease. Many people cope by drinking or by drugs. Then they place their hope in sobriety or some generic higher power. Many people think that social advancement or getting straight A's or making the team or, or, or having that body image that I aspire to or, or, or just making more money, these will fix the woes. Just before we left to Minnesota to move out here, I attended the funeral of a young girl who had died by suicide. And the note that she basically wrote to those she left behind was, this was the only way I felt I could escape the pain I was feeling. We're all trying to cope with this world of sin and death. This chaos that ravages our hearts and minds. And a lot of people turn to classical religion as well. A lot of people show up to places like this and they, and they sing songs and, and they, and they give money to places like this even and hopefully that, that'll fix it. They try to appease the God that is housed in a place like this. They clench beads, they say prayers, they go into booths, they confess their sins to people, they try to do something to fix the problem they know they have. These are all pursuits. These are all things that we put at the center. These are what define us, our worldview. These inform our value, where we find acceptance. They tell us how we should think and behave and feel. But condemnation follows all of these. Because religion only serves to spread and increase guilt. Whenever we try to get rid of our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, our relational chaos ourselves, and it doesn't work, 
it makes us feel more guilty, more shameful, more broken. Ask anybody in recovery how they felt after a relapse. Ask anybody who just finished saying their 15 Hail Marys as the priest commanded how they felt. Did it fix their guilt? Did it take their shame away? No, it only increased it. I I tried to do the thing that was promised me would take away my guilt, and when I couldn't succeed in doing it, then it only made me feel more guilty. The reason that only those who are in Christ are not condemned is because if you're not in Christ, then you're still relying on your own efforts to fix the problem. And you don't have the ability or the capacity to fix your problem. Being in Christ means that we have surrendered our life over to trust in him. That we've acknowledged and confessed that we've placed something else more centrally in our life than he. And we begin filtering our life then through him rather than our own selfish ways as we rely on what he's accomplished on our behalf. Everybody outside of Christ is still relying on their own works to save them. And that cannot be done. Now, Paul doesn't use this language right here, but this is exactly what he's saying in the first four verses of Romans. He's writing to a culture whose religious efforts were classically religious in nature. Now, less and less of our culture's religious efforts are classically religious in nature. And what I mean by that is like fewer and fewer people are coming into a place like this hoping to fix their own problems. People are less and less interested in what the church provides them to fix the problems they know they have, and so they're trying to do it themselves. Less and less of our culture is classically religious in nature, but everybody in Paul's day was very, very classically religious in nature. Everybody in Paul's day understood that if you want to be free of your guilt and your shame and the brokenness that you experience, you go to the temple, you offer your sacrifices, you observe the law, you observe the Sabbath regulations, you do what has been told to you to do by the religious institution, that will fix your problem. That is how you go about being saved. Their religion, their attempt at saving themselves was tied up in the temple and the law of Moses. And by following the law, they were hoping to discover an end to coping. But instead, the law just increased their guilt. The law made them realize that they were guilty. This does not mean, however, that the law was bad. The law was good, Paul says in chapter 7, and that it provided the standard needed to attain right relationship with God. It's just that it also made us realize how far from the righteous standard we actually are. You see, the law was given to clarify human expectation and human responsibility. I've only ever received two speeding tickets in my life. One of them, I was with Emily. We were in rural, nowhere land, Minnesota. And this is before the day of like when your your phone or your car even would tell you the speed limit that you're supposed to be driving on any given road. Or that there's a cop ahead, right? Yeah, our cars tell us that too now, right? And so I, I didn't know what the speed limit was. Rural Minnesota, like, I, don't, I, I could be going 80 down this dirt road. Nobody's around me for miles and miles and miles. Nobody would even know, right? I don't know what the speed limit is. But the cop did. And I was evidently breaking the speed limit, right? I had gone beyond what was acceptable. <clears throat> we, we won't mention that part of the story. But... I had, no idea what the, I had no idea what the law was. I was ignorant of what my expectation was. And yet I was still punished for not knowing or not abiding by them. And Paul said this is exactly why the law was put in place. He says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. So the law of God provided through Moses, once boiled down, was really just to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others in the same, and to love oneself. To live, in other words, as we were originally created to live upon this planet. To live as Adam and Eve lived before sin had entered the world. The law provided the standard for what it meant to be human on this planet, but it was given to sinful humans who could not live it out. And so Paul, he is so excited. The tone of chapter 8, like I've said, is fireworks, right? He's lit the fuse back in chapter 3, and it's trickled. There's been some displays of fireworks throughout Romans so far, but this is the grand finale. He is so excited. He is eager. He is celebrating, jumping up and down. We've just hit the jackpot. We've just won the Super Bowl. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He fulfilled the impossible standard of the law by living it perfectly. Now, everything the law embodied, all our incapacities, all our shortcomings, all our failed attempts at securing life on our, by our own efforts, all the sin it conjured up and the guilt it produced, all of this was put to death with Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. His faithfulness at the center of our lives, creating for them a right relationship with God and thereby receiving his resurrection spirit to empower our living. See, sin left this gap between us and God. Sin left this enormous gap between humanity and God, and Jesus closed that gap through his faithful life, and he carried then everything that was contained in that gap with him to the cross. He condemned it at the cross, put it to death at the cross, so that we could live freely and faithfully with God. That is what Paul is so eager and excited to say, even if he says it in a really dense theological way. Here is exactly what he wrote. And here is why I decided to paraphrase it for you rather than just tell you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Again, the intention of the law was to give life. The law was good. And it was our instruction to love God and to love others. It described how life works best and how we were created to live, but we could not live it out because it was given to sinful humans. So God, clothed in flesh himself, fulfilled this intention by perfectly living it himself in the person of Jesus. He loved God. He loved man. He loved himself fully and completely. And by doing so, he gathered up all that the law embodied, including our inabilities to fulfill it. And he carried all of that to the cross. He slayed it there on the cross and he buried it in the grave. He condemned sin there in his own flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so Jesus, having done all this, passed on his faithfulness, right? He fulfilled the purpose of the law through living it perfectly, and he passed on his faithfulness to everybody who would trust in him. We are not condemned because God now looks at those who have trusted Jesus with their lives. When he looks at us, he sees Christ's faithfulness, not our inabilities. Next week, we're going to unpack exactly what these next seven verses are all about, talking about living according to the Spirit and living a Jesus-centered life. But for now, let me invite Emily and John forward. We're going to sing one final song as we conclude our time.
Let me explain it this way. When I was in high school <clears throat> in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, girls' hockey had just become a varsity sport. And our school won the very first girls' hockey state championship in the nation. It was a big deal because this had never been done in the history of sports. And so it was a huge deal. Like, it was covered nationally. Now, obviously, I didn't play on the team that won that state championship. In fact, I didn't play hockey at all. It was one of those things that I asked about, and my parents were like, can't afford that, sorry. I wanted to be a hockey player, but it wasn't offered me. But when I went in to work the following day, I worked at Chi-Chi's. <clears throat> you guys remember? Oh, I loved Man, such a good restaurant. I worked at Chi-Chi's. I went into Chi-Chi's the next day after the girls had won the state championship, and everybody was congratulating me. Have you guys ever experienced this before? Everyone was congratulating me for having won the state championship. Congratulations. Aren't you so excited? You won? You won? You won the state championship? I'm like, what? I'm not a girl and I don't play hockey. Like, how, how is this applied to me, right? They were applying to me as they were really the entire town of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, because it was like a whole town victory, right? They were applying to me the victory of the team because of my affiliation with the school. Applying to me the victory of the team because of my affiliation with the school. I was in the school and therefore I was also the champion. I thought it strange, but that is exactly what Christ does for us. When we place Jesus at the center of our lives because we've surrendered whatever else was there, that's a really important piece of this, friends, that we need to surrender whatever else is there and we shove aside whatever else was there as we trust in him with that sacred space. We are brought into his victory and given the same standing before the Father that he has always had. And when we're ushered before the final when we're ushered before the Father on that final day of judgment, God will look at us and he will see Christ and he will apply his faithfulness to us and therefore we will not be condemned. It's wild that Christ would take our sin, our death, our condemnation and in exchange give us his life, his peace, his faithfulness, his joy, his spirit. But this is the promise for all who trust in him. And so I don't know where all you were at this morning. I don't know if you're still trying to live this life by your own efforts, trying to fix the problem you know you have, and that you have a very crowded center inside of you. And you know what? Whenever, again, whenever we put something alongside Jesus, we're always going to live selfishly, and selfishly is always going to hurt our relationships. Living selfishly is always going to hurt ourselves. Living selfishly will always leave a path of chaos and ruin and destruction in its wake. Some of you know this. Because you wake up every morning and you look over to the person laying next to you and you're like, why? Why is there so much chaos in this household? Why is there so much frustration? We're selfish beings. Naturally we are. That was the gift Adam and Eve gave us. But Jesus has given us a greater gift. Redemption and restoration in his son. If we take that center of our lives and we just confess that, God, you know what? I've put a lot of stuff in my center. I I have a lot of pursuits. 
pursuing money or pursuing my own achievement or my own success, my own goals, my own security, self-preservation. I confess that there are other things in my life, in my center, in my heart that, that Jesus isn't sitting enthroned upon my heart because I have so many other things that are sitting there. There's no room for him there. And if it is, you know, I gave him a little corner. Isn't that all I need? I just, I gave him a little part of me. I let him, you know, I let him sit there, maybe lean up against it. And we think we're doing some, you know, great thing by coming to church every now and then and saying a prayer every now and then and reading our Bible every now and then. But if Jesus is not at the center, if you have not surrendered your life to him, it's always only ever going to be chaos. And in the end, you're going to say, Lord, Lord, but didn't we? But didn't I? And you know what God's going to say to you? Sorry, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, to the place where you truly wanted to be, which was your own destruction. That's Matthew chapter 7, by the way. That's what Jesus tells those who ask that same question. But Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? No. You, 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 you may have attached me to the side of your life, but I'm not the Lord of your life. So my, my, my hope and prayer for everyone is that we would put Jesus more solely and firmly at the center of our life and that we would surrender whatever else might be there to him. Because only then will we experience that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so if you guys are ready, I'm going to say a prayer. And if you're at this point where you're like, you know, I can't keep doing this any longer. I need to, I need to surrender. Then I invite you to say this prayer along with me. And it's not a magic prayer. These words aren't magic, but it's, it's a prayer of contrition and humility that God will meet you there and he will begin to lift you up. Heavenly Father, I need to confess. I need to confess that you are not the Lord of my life. And that you haven't been, Father, and that I've put other things there, and I've, I've, I've you know, I, I knew of you as a child, and so I always had you kind of there somewhere in the middle, but like you were never there alone, you were never there. I've given you a lot of lip service throughout the years, Father, but I've never surrendered my life, I've never worshipped you fully, I've never given you everything. And we're all trying to figure out how to best get through this life. And we're all trying to do it by our own efforts. And I confess and I admit I own the fact that I have tried my own way. And I'm ready, Father, right now to say no more. I surrender my life to you. I'm going to let all that selfish ambition and vain conceit die today. And by the power of your spirit, Father, which you have entrusted me and, and, and promised me, would you lead me and guide me, Father, in, into my own personal restoration and let that restoration then bleed out onto my household and onto my marriage and onto my relationship with my kids and onto my purpose and onto my willingness to get out of bed in the morning? I know that, you know, I may not walk away from this place magically transformed, Father, but I know if I continue to surrender that center to you every single day, and it needs to be a daily commitment to take up my cross, to die to my selfish ambition, and to put you rightfully where you need to be, that you will change me, Father, to be more like your son, Jesus. And then I will start living self-sacrificially towards my spouse rather than selfishly. 
I will live, I will give of myself, I will die to myself for them, Father. And I pray just that the other people in my relationship, in my community, they do the same, so that this beautiful dance of reciprocity, Father, that the world will look upon and they'd see, wow, that is exactly what the world needs. How can I get more of that? As we die to ourselves and others die to themselves, we pour ourselves out into others, they pour themselves out into us. We're never lacking, Father. We're always fulfilled. May your spirit empower it. May your spirit heal. May your spirit guide us, Father, into a brighter future where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who have trusted and placed their life in Christ Jesus. And so we surrender, Father. We confess. We acknowledge we're sinners. We acknowledge we need you. We acknowledge that you alone can save us. And we trust in you. Now do in us what you promised, Father. Begin to make us like your son. Shape us and mold that lump of clay, Father, into something beautiful. So that when we stand before you, Father, you look at an exact replica of your son. Even if we're not fully there on this side of eternity, Father. Even if we never get there on this side of eternity. You look at an exact replica of your son and say, enter into a glorious eternity waiting for you. We ask that you do this in us, Father. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're just going to sing one final song quick as we end our time together, conclude our time together. And I would encourage you to, to pray with us or, or uh, stand and worship with us, whatever you need to do right now to, to conclude our time together. So God, we thank you that you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as we trust in what you have accomplished for us, Father, that there is now no condemnation for those who place their trust in you. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for being with us today. Go forth knowing that you are free through your faith in Jesus Christ. See you next time.